Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're going to break down the breakdown in Iowa and give you a little taste of what to expect in the coming weeks as Californians and others across the nation get their chance to weigh in on the Democratic primary race. We're going to have voter data guru Paul Mitchell here in studio to explain the ins and outs of primaries and caucuses and delegate math and all those things. I need some help on the math angle, personally. Math's hard. Math is hard. But first, we're really excited to have with us, all the way from New Hampshire, fellow public radio politico Dan Barrick. He is the news director at New Hampshire Public Radio. He oversees and works on the Stranglehold Stranglehold podcast, which investigates the power and influence behind the New Hampshire primary, which is just days away. Dan, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks for having me. So we... um, Our calling around last week, we talked to an Iowa public radio reporter, um, to our brethren around the states, just to figure out, like, what the vibe is a few days before, for you guys, the first primary in the nation. How how are things feeling there in New Hampshire? Uh, Definitely feeling kind of hectic and still... Uh, quite unsettled. You know, the the, the day the days at, right after Iowa are usually a kind of clarifying period for New Hampshire, too. Um, it, you know, we usually traditionally come about a week after Iowa. And while New Hampshire likes to really stake out its independence from Iowa in terms of taking its cues, um, it, it is it is usually at least give people a sense of, of where the race stands. Obviously, with the caucus results, that's kind of thrown that into disarray somewhat, both for the candidates and the voters. We've talked to lots of voters who have said they've been um, confused or um, at least uh, a, a little bit dismayed by what the, the, the result in Iowa. Um, and it's still sort of uh, the Iowa results are still very much being litigated on the campaign trail. Just an hour or two uh, ago um, here, Bernie Sanders held a press conference, a sort of impromptu press conference in Manchester, in which he said he essentially declared victory in Iowa, um, looking at math that shows he he had more sort of popular votes than uh, here we go. I know. It's just right? sort of odd, you know, three days after the caucuses that in Manchester, New Hampshire, we're sort of having victory speeches being delivered. So that has definitely given the, the what is normally a kind of breakneck, very, you know, much kind of like get out the vote vibe in New Hampshire has made it feel um, quite a bit uh, uh, unsteady. So, Dan, the stakes are obviously very high on Tuesday for everybody, all the candidates. But I'm wondering, like, to what extent... Has what happened in Iowa, which is still unfolding, but to, to what extent has that changed the messages that these voters are telling voters in New Hampshire? 
Well, you know, not not a ton, actually. I mean, other than the, that kind of jostling I described where, you know, you've got Buttigieg and, and Sanders sort of each claiming victories there. Um, from what we're hearing on the campaign trail, you know, all the candidates have done several events now, retail type events since Iowa, and they're largely sticking to their stump speeches that they've been delivering to voters here for months. Um, so Buttigieg very much has a kind of like new era, turn the page message. Biden very much sort of um, leaning on his experience in the Obama administration and his record. Sanders, you know, Sanders' message is, is very consistent and clear for months. Uh, Warren very much talking about a kind of party unity message. Um, I think trying to kind of um, maybe uh, attract voters who are unsteady, uneasy about uh, Sanders and Buttigieg for different reasons. Um, and then the rest of the field, you know, Yang, Gabbard, Klobuchar, uh, Steyer are, are out there as well, not really drawing as, as big a crowds as the rest. But, are they um, still in it? You know, real... <laughs> I feel like all we're <laughs> yes. talking about this week is the, the top, top three or four. Yeah, um, and, and that's a good point. I mean, you go out and, and there are still people, New Hampshire voters showing up to these these other candidates' events and and, and, and interested in just kind of hearing what, they, what they've got to say in the well, final days. Talk to us about who looks strong. We were looking at polling this, num- this morning. It seems like Sanders um, has been, since the fall, really inching up into a strong position there. Warren and he kind of switched swap places. Um, mm-hmm. We have seen some polling showing Buttigieg gaining strength in recent days and Biden starting to plummet. I mean, obviously, these are all polls, the real polls on Tuesday, yada, yada. But like, wh- what's your sense on the ground in terms of how voters are reacting? <clears throat> who's Who people are enthusiastic about? Uh, you're right. Some of, the, some of the recent tracking polls show uh, Buttigieg picking up uh, day by day from Iowa. I mean, Sanders remains strong. You, you'll remember four years ago, he won 60 percent of the vote here against Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary. Um, he, of course, will not replicate that number, but he retains a really strong base here. And I think the real focus of his campaign in the next few days is not necessarily expanding, like drawing new people into the campaign, but really focusing on getting his base out to the polls. Uh, he draws a lot of support from groups that traditionally don't vote in very high numbers, young young people in particular. So I think we'll see a real focus on that. His final campaign stop in the state will be a, uh, a concert-style rally at the University of New Hampshire headlined by the Strokes uh, 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 band. So he's really trying to get young people motivated. Um, so I think that's, you know, and especially this weekend, we're anticipating to see just a real kind of classic get out the vote, identify your supporters, make sure that you can drag them to the polls uh, on primary day on Tuesday. Dan, I had a, a call from my sister-in-law who lives in Dover, New Hampshire, the other day. And, you know, she would naturally be a Sanders or Warren voter, but she's... Way to out your sister, Scott. You know, sister-in-law. Um, <laughs> and technically former sister-in-law, now, now that you mentioned now it. Now it's getting That's complicated. My brother. Yeah, right? Keeps going. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but she's, you know, she's really trying to decide between the ones she think would best do against Trump. I mean, to what extent are people being really strategic, as hard as that really is, but are, to what extent are voters thinking that way about this election? Based on conversations that our reporters have been having, not only in the past few days, but really for months, that is probably the number one issue, you know, boil it down to that, quote unquote, electability. Um, And I think that's in part the results from Iowa have sort of made that determination different, that there was no clear person coming out of Iowa. Um, We've seen a lot of past primaries. You go back to 2004, where John Kerry and Howard Dean were sort of, um, you know, in a tight race when Kerry came out of Iowa very strong. You saw Dean plummet in the polls in New Hampshire in the days before the primary. That's not really happening. And I think, again, just hearing what we're we're talking to voters out at candidate events, um, there is a lot of head scratching about, like, you know, if my big 
my main concern is putting forth a Democratic nominee who can uh, take the fight to Trump. Um, a lot of voters are saying, I, I don't know. I don't know who that person is in that f- in the field. So, Dan, we know that, you know, California obviously moved up our primary to Super Tuesday. Um, there's been a lot of people kind of nipping at New Hampshire's heels, I think, trying to get, trying to get in the game. Has that impacted how you think candidates, how much candidates are campaigning there or also are New Hampshire and New Hampshireans? I don't know. What, I don't know if the word New is. Hampshireites, but New yeah, Hampshireites. New Hampshireites. Are they yeah. talking about because we've heard a lot of talk about Iowa about like, oh, it's such a white state. Is this representative? Like, do you feel like voters and or campaigns are feeling the pressure from some of the changes in the primary schedule? I don't think the candidates are. Um, I, I think it, in some respect, you might have seen slightly less attention paid to New Hampshire um, rather than Iowa for various reasons. But the campaigns have been coming over the past year in New Hampshire. In large part, it's just a practical political uh, choice. I mean, as long as New Hampshire is first and the, the national media and donors pay attention to the results out of Iowa, candidates have to start coming. You did hear um, quite a bit of grumbling from um, a couple candidates who dropped out of the race. Julian Castro, probably most prominently after he dropped out of the race a couple months ago, was pretty bold in his statements that he feels Iowa and New Hampshire do not represent the nation uh, and should be removed. Those have been, you know, sort of perennial concerns raised from out of state. And folks in New Hampshire for years have gotten pretty accustomed to waving them away. I think the pressure is more intense this cycle and has become even more so after after Iowa, um, in part because, you know, with, with the, the real confusion out of the caucus, I, th- I do think it gave a platform to people who would who are inclined to lump Iowa and New Hampshire together as, you know, uh, enjoying this privileged position that they really aren't don't deserve and aren't worth the fuss. Um, and I think a lot of people in New Hampshire in the past few days, we've been talking to some party elites um, and even regular voters who, who are concerned. You know, Iowa and New Hampshire have really worked in tandem over the decades um, to preserve their first position, um, to kind of jointly defend and, and fend off challenges from other bigger states that feel it's it's unfair that these two disproportionate, you know, unrepresentative states occupy this position. With Iowa coming under so much scrutiny, I think a lot of people are feeling, you know, that that uh, that that you know, New Hampshire and Iowa rise or yeah. fall together. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so I think that it has raised some anxiety, especially in a time which is normally a celebratory period for New Hampshire political class. Right. It's the it's right. primary week. It's it's a time to to, to celebrate the primary. And, and that's been a, a shadow's really been cast. Well, Iowa. I don't. I hardly yeah. know Iowa. Um, exactly. Before we let you go, Dan, uh, how early or late are we going to know results from New Hampshire? Do you think on, on election <laughs> yeah, what, night? Let's manage some expectations here. Well, the Secretary of State Bill Gardner, who's been who's been running elections here for forty plus years, predicted the other day that we'd know the elections by nine thirty in the evening, um, which is which is early. I, most polling places in New Hampshire close at either seven or eight o'clock. Um, it is a paper ballot system, so there's there's a paper trail, and and most ballots are either counted by hand or by machine. Um, I think the fact you know we saw such a close race in Iowa um, that that has not really helped winnow the field in any major way. I think. We could see a similar result with a couple of candidates in the 20 percentage and a couple in the high teens that could lead to um, a late night. Um, I think especially with Iowa, uh, the, the kind of debacle coming out of there, there is going to be a little bit more um, scrupulous attention to the results. The the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, and the Governor just this afternoon held a press conference where they were laying out a few new um, standards that they're going to be introducing on Tuesday to ensure um, you know, ensure that the rigor is applied there. Um, 930 seems early to me, um, but um, that's at least the word coming from the elections office here. 
All right. You heard it from Dan Barrick of the New Hampshire <laughs> Public Radio. What's your cell phone number, Dan? Call him. Tweet him. We could all use an early night now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, for those of you who have not gotten enough primary news this week, check out Stranglehold. They're going to be dropping a couple more episodes before the primary. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Dan Barrick of New Hampshire Public Radio, thanks a million for joining us. Thank you, guys. All right, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, we will be joined by California's voting guru, Paul Mitchell. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and today we are thrilled to welcome Paul Mitchell. He is the owner of Redistricting Partners. He advises both Republicans and Democrats on how to read the electorate in California. Paul, welcome to The Breakdown. Well, thank you for having me. Did I mess that up at all? Is that accurate? No, also the vice president of political data. A lot of people look at me for that, working with the Democrats and Republicans, actually, on a bipartisan basis. Uh, yeah, what do you data. do? Tell us what you do. Well, what I do, uh, a lot of time what I do is honestly like making polling samples and working with data directly. Uh, what is that? How do you do that? Um, well, it's interesting. We have 20 million voters on the voter file. And if you're doing a poll, there's a job of the pollster to try to get a representative sample um, so that when they're done with their phone calls, they can basically tell what the electorate is thinking. That's the basic principle in polling. But one of the challenges is how do you determine what's a representative sample and What's a representative sample for a primary might be different than what's a representative be- sample for a general election or for a special election. and Because so, it's basically a projection of who you think is going to vote, right? Yeah, and, and the largest thing that determines voting behavior is past voting behavior. And then now in California, especially with this rapidly growing voter file, you've introduced a lot of new registrants. Right, wild cards. Yeah, and, but what we've done with that is we kind of... As an example, if, if a polling sample has a lot of new registrants, we'll flag which ones are the active registrants or only include the active registrants, which is people who seek a voter registration and might not put as many people who are inactive or passive registrants like people who register at the DMV. Got it. And then ultimately, different pollsters have different methodologies. And so uh, depending on which client we're working with, we will provide the file to them in any number of ways. Sometimes just phone numbers, sometimes just cell or cell or landline separate, sometime with email addresses, because often now pollsters are introducing to their samples not just uh, phone calls, but also uh, emailing people and asking them to take an online survey. And as long as you're emailing somebody you know is on the voter file, you know their vote history, you know their ethnicity, their gender, their age, their voting behavior, their partisanship, 
and you can tie that back to their completed online survey, it can be a legitimate tool. Unlike, you know, those click polls where, you know, you send out a, a thing online and Whoever you don't answers, answers, answers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's not scientific. So the pollsters you're working with are generally hired by our campaigns. So it's the campaigns themselves that are paying you? Well, um, the camp- this is really in the weeds, but the campaigns themselves don't generally pay us for the polling piece, but they do pay us for uh, a different product, which is the being able to do the precinct walking, the mobile apps, the walk sheets, the phone lists, the mail files. And our clients range from school board candidates and city council candidates to statewide ballot measures. And then you get into a lot of other stuff with... But why do they need you? Isn't this all publicly available data? Oh, yeah. It's publicly available data. And I, 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 you're more than welcome to go to any county and go you know, buy a voter file. But even when you talk to the counties and you say, hey, I really want to target Latinos, they'll tell you, call PDI. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. And, uh, and in fact, there are counties that are clients of ours. Um, and in fact, we've worked for the state, Secretary of State as well because... The county registrar's job is to make sure that the election goes off without a hitch. Wah, nobody wah. calls, yeah. Nobody calls us to say well, set up a polling place or you know right, design a ballot. Right, but their job is not to they're, crunch the data. Yeah, their job is not to uh, tell a campaign or a pollster who's likely to vote or to build in data on top of the voter file. Like, is somebody a homeowner? Is somebody Latino? Is somebody uh, a Democrat that lives with an independent? Also, right now, how many times have they voted in the past, and and when have they voted? Campaigns that are now in California, these presidentials are having these eye-opening moments, where they're saying, "Wait, you can tell me the date that these people have returned their ballots for each of the last twenty elections?" Like, the so what do they do with that information? Well, what they do is they cut voter files to say outreach and do phone banking and texting right now to the people person. who have historically voted early. Not me. Like, no. I'm the person that walks in and puts my vote-by-mail ballot at the polling place with my kids every time. And in the voter file, we would have you flagged as an always late. And <laughs> That's a procrastinating <laughs> voter. I'm not saying that pejoratively. <laughs> but um, uh, as an always late voter, a campaign isn't going to waste resources texting you now telling you to vote because they know your pattern. Hmm. But let me ask you this, because I always wonder about like who people think I am as a voter or somebody else. Like, right, like my name sounds pretty me. Latina. Like I, you know, there's things you like you said, like, are you a renter versus homeowner? But I mean, do you ever feel like sometimes it's a little dangerous, this game you're playing? <laughs> no, um, it's very dangerous. It's like a <laughs> 007 data scientist. Um, the uh, there are potentially some negative things that come from this kind of hyper-targeting of voters. One thing that I think stands out is that if there is a low voter turnout universe um, and campaigns are only spending money on high turnout voters, then we essentially have this system that's, you know... It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it is. can be sometimes. Um, And so there are concerns like from some folks in the social justice community in the you know kind of common cause kind of world where they say well this voter data stuff is inherently kind of bad because it it encourages campaigns to only focus on and spend money on and send mail to and turn out people who are likely to vote who historically have been white more wealthy more conservative uh, higher whatever. income yeah. homeowners and stuff. but so, the counter argument is that campaigns that 
uh, actually want to target low turnout voters, and there's certain methods that have shown to be very effective at turning out low turnout voters, they can focus their dollars just on the voters on the other end of the spectrum. So it works both ways. So we've seen in California, obviously, a real growth in the percentage of the electorate that is no party preference, so-called independent voters. Does that make it harder for you and campaigns to figure out voter behavior because they're not affiliated with a party? Well, that's exactly another reason why it makes it harder for somebody to go to the county and just buy, buy a raw voter file. Because if you're a new nonpartisan voter in, in San Francisco or in any county in California, particularly if you've moved counties recently, you're just a blank canvas. But in PDI's voter file, we would know that you used to be a Democrat or used to be a Republican. We would be able to let you target people based on uh, their ethnicity, on the makeup of their household, if they live with three Republicans and they're an independent in Placer County, i got a surprise for you, they're probably Republican. <laughs> um, but if they're a, uh, an Asian in Orange County that's younger, uh, they're some of the most progressive voters in the entire state. Even if their parents may not be. And yeah, that's yeah. a whole, we could do a whole that's show a whole on on this divide between certain uh, ethnicities and the younger generation you know, versus the immigrant generation. All right, if you're just joining us, I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are Political Breakdown. We are Political Breakdown. And we're, list- or we're talking with Paul Mitchell, who studies voter data, as you are learning, and crunches it and sells it. And so let's talk about what we all care about right now, which is this Democratic primary. 15 million vote-by-mail ballots have already gone out in California. We still don't know what the heck happened in Iowa. New Hampshire's coming up. Um, what, I guess, before we go deep in California, like, what are your takeaways from the last week? And what do you expect to happen over the next few weeks as, you know, in Democrats in California start voting? Well, uh, what's really interesting is if you had asked me a week ago, I'd say Iowa is the most important thing for the California electorate because when Iowa receives, when when Californians receive their ballots, largely on Monday, Tuesday is when they were being mailed out, so they're receiving them this week, would be right in the foreground would be whoever won Iowa. And so a big, resounding, clear victory by a candidate in Iowa would have a huge impact on the entirety of California's 15 million vote-by-mail electorate. Why, why is that? People want to vote for a winner, I guess? Well, people want to find—the polling suggested in the Democratic primary the most important thing is can you beat Donald Trump? And if you want to identify somebody as a winner, the best way to identify is somebody who wins, right? <laughs> it's kind of plain. But, Not working so know, well for Joe Biden right well, now. Well, the, the—so I think people— would see that momentum. And the important thing is that the momentum from Iowa would hit all 15 million vote by mails. Now, New Hampshire's coming pretty quick. And so we believe only 5% of those 15 million will vote before we know the results of New Hampshire. So still, New Hampshire could be very impactful. South Carolina, Nevada? Nevada. By the time we get to Nevada, we're projecting 25% of the entire California electorate that's going to vote in March will have cast their ballots, not just of the vote by mail, but 25% of the entire. And by the time of South Carolina, 40, 44% of the California electorate will have cast ballots. So the challenge is that if your strategy is to come in the early states and just win South Carolina and then waltz into California, you're going to waltz into California and 40-something percent of voters will have already cast their ballots. That's crazy. So it, many, many years ago, you would have these winner-take-all primaries. We don't have that anymore. So describe, like, what on election night and in the coming days, because they have to count the ballots if that are postmarked by Tuesday as long as late as Friday of that week, how, how does the delegate math add up? There's, I think, what, 
495 delegates? 494, actually. 94 delegates. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so how do they get apportioned? So there's statewide and congressional level delegates, 144 statewide, and the remainder are allocated the congressional level. Some congressional districts, like the one we're in in San Francisco, have the max, seven delegates, and others have as, many, as few as four. Now, in each of those congressional districts, they allocate these delegates proportionally for any candidate that gets over 15%. So you could have Andrew Yang getting over 15% in a district in San Jose or something like that with like an Asian tech influence and uh, getting a delegate. But if he gets 7 or 9 or 11 or 12 or 14% in other congressional districts, he gets zero delegates. So it's proportional. And because of that, that means that I mean, we already know voting takes a long time in California. If you've been paying attention, some of the 2018 races took weeks to call. That seems like that will be exacerbated by this need to do the math after the votes are counted. Well, what's interesting about that is that we're all veterans of this, you know, very long process of counting ballots. Um, But I think what we'll see on Super Tuesday is that the that the win, quote unquote, that comes that night, Wednesday morning, who won California is going to be really all that matters. Few people are going to come back three weeks later, four weeks later, and say, well, really, who really, really won California? Well, and because it's proportional, maybe it's not going to— It's It's not going to be that drastic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're going to see small movements. But because of the emphasis on the um, optics of who wins California on election night and Super Tuesday and what CNN says and that whole momentum and fundraising and everything that comes from it, uh, the system really advantages campaigns who can get their voters to vote the earliest. Mm. As we remember, the voting, the vote counting comes in essentially like four buckets. The first bucket that's counted on election night at 8.01 p.m., as soon as the polls close, they come out with results and they'll say, so-and-so is winning, 0% reporting. And that means that they have counted the mail-in ballots that have come in, but they haven't yet counted the poll voters. All night, they continue to count, and the count that they finish, like at midnight or one, is all those early ballots plus all the people who voted at the polls. Then they wait. And we might wait a day. We might wait a couple days. They're going to weigh huge bags of ballots to see how many ballots are outstanding. They're going to start signature verifying all the mail-in ballots that came late. And you're going to start to see those get counted in the weeks following. And then there will be people who did same-day registration. Not only do they need to verify the signature, we need to make sure that this person's eligible to vote, that they didn't vote in another county. And we're even going to have people who have bad signatures or missing signatures. And the counties will report, here's all the people whose signatures are bad. They will mail them all postcards to try to get them to fix Mm. their signatures and send them back. So there's this trickle. (laughs) Super quick process. So, But the the most important thing for campaigns is, like, how do we front load as many of our votes to get them to show up on Super Tuesday? So are they doing that? And in that, do you think that then they're thinking more about the statewide delegates because the raw numbers matter or the congressional? Like, I don't know. I don't know if you are working with any of these candidates, but like, how do you think these Democratic candidates are thinking about the questions you're raising? Well, I do think that there are some candidates who are most focused on the big statewide number. Um, and if they feel like if they can get a high tide in, in state, that like what's going to come with it is delegates in the different congressional districts. There are probably some others that are specifically focusing on congressional districts. And it's a really interesting thing because the State Redistricting Commission in 2011 didn't realize it, but what they were really creating was 53 little laboratories for political campaigns because you now have 
a district in Southern California that was drawn to be as as African-American as possible, and next to it, a district that is as coastal as possible, and next to it, a district that's as LGBT as possible. And all these districts, because of the way the commission was focused not on partisanship or incumbency, they were focused on communities of interest. Each of these districts maximizes these communities of interest, and each of the campaigns can target those individual congressional districts. One of the big wild cards is Mike Bloomberg. Uh, who is spending a lot of money. And I'm wondering, how are you seeing his campaign operating, if at all? I mean, are they coming to you? Uh, What might he, with his unlimited resources, be able to do that others might not? Well, it's interesting because when he first started to run, a lot of people like shook their heads and said, well, that's not how you do it, right? You know, everybody's supposed to do these early primary states, and that's the only way that you can get the momentum to, you know, come into Super Tuesday. But there's two challenges with that. One is um, we only have a limited number of examples. This current primary system has really only been in place since like 72 or something. So we're dealing with a small sample size of how many primaries. The second thing is, why do those early states matter? They matter essentially because of earned media, because campaigns can't afford to spend as much money as it would take to, you know, get this visibility in all these states. Um, they essentially have to earn it by, lo- by winning in tiny little states like Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, so we're going to see really a test of whether or not you can unlimited funds means you can skip the early states yeah and and um i think a lot of what you've seen in the polling shows that he's kind of getting towards a number that would suggest that he's going to be in the delegate getting game um i don't know about statewide delegates but definitely in the individual congressional districts all right we're going to have to leave it there paul mitchell redistricting partners and uh voted doubter inc Political data. Political data. I'm messing this up. Thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. Oh, I love it. Thank you. (laughs) That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producers are Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Julie Kane. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I am at M Lagos. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me 
supporting the programs they love, while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.